Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Kurt Thompson. This episode is part one in a two-part series, so be sure to subscribe and tune in next week for part two. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well, my guest today, Kurt Thompson, is a psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia. And he's the founder of Being Known and the Center for Being Known. And just that in and of itself, I love. I just like love that um, that is what his place is called, Being Known. And it's an organization that is developing resources to educate leaders about the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation and vocational creativity. I discovered Dr. Thompson um, when uh, Amazon recommended his book to me based on my buying history. And then I saw that it was endorsed by Dan Siegel and that caused me to be even more excited about it. So Dr. Thompson graduated from Wright State University School of Medicine. He completed his psychiatric residency at Temple University Hospital, and he is board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Uh, He uh, has a private practice where he sees clients, he supervises other clinicians, He runs groups uh, for both patients and colleagues. Throughout his career, along with treating adults, adolescents, and families, a main focus of clinical and research interest has been the integration of psychiatry and its associated disciplines and Christian spirituality. And he speaks frequently on these topics. Uh, His specific expertise in interpersonal neurobiology and how it reflects important tenets of the Christian faith provide opportunities to comprehend and experience the same faith in fresh and trustworthy ways. So he and his wife, Phyllis, are parents of two children and reside in Arlington, Virginia. He is an elder at the Washington Community Church, which is a congregation of the Mennonite Church in Washington, D.C. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another interview um, with Attachment Theory in Action. And I'm so excited uh, today to be talking with Dr. Kurt Thompson. And we are going to be talking about some of the overlap between attachments and spiritual beliefs and faith and some other things just about neuroscience in general. So um, Dr. Thompson, welcome. And could you give a little introduction about your background to the listeners? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show, and it's um, great to be part of this. It's an honor, and it's uh, it's always humbling to be asked to be um, joining, you know, in conversations where people are actually working so hard. So, and I, I know that um, 
anytime we start to talk about attachment, we're talking uh, about hard work about any, as much as we're talking about anything else. Yeah. So I am, uh, important things I think to know about me is that um, I've been married for 32 years. Um, we have two adult children, a daughter and a son. Um, and I live and work in Northern Virginia. Um, and I am been in a private practice as a psychiatrist uh, since 1992. And in the last uh, close to 15 years have been working in this field of interpersonal neurobiology, uh, where in which, of course, we talk an awful lot about attachment, um, but also as a, as, a, as a follower of Jesus uh, and as a Christian, therefore, um, I do a lot of work along this intersection, th at this intersection of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. So that's a lot of where the work is that uh, um, uh, has me doing writing and speaking work. So I, that's a little bit about me. Yes, fantastic. Well, I know I shared before the show started that I had um, seen Dan Siegel's endorsement of your book, and that's kind of what led me to find it. And I was I was so grateful for that. So, you know, how did you get involved in this idea of interpersonal neurobiology? It seems like it would be an no-brainer that psychiatrists would have an interest in that, but my experience mm -hmm. is that's not necessarily so. So, right. how does this happen for you? Well, it's actually it's it's actually a short but a very fun story okay. um, for me to tell. Um, quite literally, I uh, in in nineteen, I guess it was in two thousand and four. I um, was attending the American Psychiatric Association's annual conference in New York, and in the syllabus there was this half-day course that was being taught by this guy by the name of Dan Siegel. And it, uh, it was titled uh, following his book, Parenting from the Inside Out. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I'd never heard of interpersonal neurobiology. I didn't know who Dan was. And so, uh, but it looked interesting. I wandered into this workshop and four hours later, I knew that uh, my clinical life was probably not ever gonna be the same. And wow. so there was something captivating about it. And of course, I think, I think Dan, of course, in 2004, Dan had already been doing a lot of work and thinking about this, although I, I think he would even say it was a bit uh, rough around the edges. And by rough around the edges, I, I, don't, I don't mean that, it, that the thinking wasn't elegant. I just mean that in terms of systematizing it, right. he was still in the early stages of doing that. And also beginning, I think, to have a vision. He was, he was beginning to have a vision of what it would mean to train other people to begin to think about this and to collaborate with him in expanding and deepening the thinking about what interpersonal neurobiology might eventually come to look like. And so that's how I was introduced to it. For me, I think uh, immediately the questions that began to emerge were, what does it mean to um, have this integrative approach to mental health care uh, and what it, and, and how does that fit in a in an anthropology in a, in a Christian or biblical anthropology, but also expanding? Uh, I mean, pretty quickly, it, it it doesn't take much to see how interpersonal neurobiology extends into any number of vocational realms that are not just uh, so it's not just limited to the mental health field. So right. I think that's right. What I'm Right, right. So when you say you knew your practice, your your clinical practice was really going to change, what 
tell me like what was like firing off in your brain when you were first hearing him speak. Yeah, well, I, th I think, you know, it's, it's often said that Einstein um, uh, kind of intuited relativity, right? It came to him in pictures. Okay. And it came to him as intuited notions of the way the world was. And it was only later that he worked out the math for this. It wasn't as if he does all this math calculation and of course then comes up with a notion of relativity. There right. was something intuitive about it. And I think, uh, and, and of course some of this is, is not just about the material itself, but it's a, you know, if, if, if the material had been, had been um, considered in the mind of somebody else, it might've been presented very differently. But of course, if you know Dan and, and his manner, um, he's very kind, he's very thorough, he's very exhaustive in his thinking about things, but also in the way that he talks about the material, and he embodies the material, I think, in many ways as well. And so I think mm -hmm. um, what it was, was a, was an offering in that workshop. It was an offering in the workshop that uh, evoked in me an intuitive sense that all the things that I had been, that I learned about in medical school and in psychiatric residency training, um, you know, there had been some things I would say that, that, that were not included in my training that Dan was talking about that really seemed to make a lot of sense, not just in terms of psychiatry, not just in terms of mental health in general, but in terms of the larger landscape of how the world tends to operate. Um, when we talk about any kind of system, when you talk about family systems, when you talk about schools, when you talk about physics, when you talk about a range of different things, um, so the, the notion of how we were talking about interpersonal neural, neurobiology, I think intuitively felt consistent with a lot of other things that I had studied, that others have studied, that I, others have talked about. And so I think for me, part of what was so exciting after that first workshop was not just a matter of, oh, here's a new psychotherapy technique. Rather, here is a new way of thinking about how the world works. Mm. Um, and of course included in that, uh, you know, was the notion, uh, of, of attachment and the role that that plays. I think what was so beautiful for me and for many of my colleagues who have, you know, begun to work in this field, um, is the way that, um, the human experiential element, right? Relationships mm -hmm. are so deeply tied to our embodied experience. And so by that, I mean the way humans relate to each other mm -hmm. affects our neural network firing patterns. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about this, as of course, as a Christian, is that this really takes us back to pre-Cartesian days, right? We, we talk about how the world over the last four to 500 years has become rather, you know, dualistic in its way of thinking about things. We have the material world on one side and the spiritual or non-material world on the other side. And it's actually not very consistent with the way the world actually operates. And I think that this notion of interpersonal neurobiology really kind of helps us revisit a biblical anthropology of how the world operates from a theological and anthropological perspective. Um, and, and I think therefore, even from everything from a very practical standpoint of helping patients make sense of their experience, I think that was one of the most powerful things that I saw happen almost immediately with this. With the application of this, we saw patients taking this information and using it in ways that not only transformed their experience of depression and anxiety states and so forth and so on, their marriages, 
but also their spiritual experience of Christian faith. Mm -hmm. So there were these multiple different domains of life, I think, that people were coming to understand very differently and experience in a much more robust, flourishing way. Um, as we applied these principles, um, almost, you know, within, you know, days to weeks of my coming back from this conference. And so pretty quickly, we had evidence at hand in the clinic of how this was not just a, a fun new idea to think about, but a new set of principles that we could apply that could give people real change in real time and space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's wonderful. Um, it helps us really make sense of why we are who we are. And, you know, in attachment literature, of course, as you know, we talk about coherence and a coherent autobiographical narrative. And, you know, right. that's, that's one of the things that really um, stood out to me in your first book, Anatomy, the soul is sort of, it's, it, it, it helps us understand, like, how does all this fit together? Like my history right. and who I am and and uh, my relationship with Christ or with God, you know, how does mm -hmm. this, how does it all fit together? And right. that's one of the things I just thought was so beautiful about the book. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, interestingly, so you, you, I think you've put your finger on a really important thing. This, this idea of uh, how we, 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 we talk with patients about how the, the brain tends to operate in such a way that we are constantly working to make sense of what we sense. Oh, that's a great, first we, yes. First we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Yes. And this is happening 24 seven. Right. And uh, whether, we want it, whether we want our brains to do this or not, this is what our brain is constantly doing. Right. And of course, those attachment patterns, as you rightly know, I mean, those attachment patterns are shaping the way we make sense of what we sense. Yes. Now, when we make sense of things, that process of making sense, of course, as you also know, turns right back around and becomes part of the thing that we sense. Yes. And so it can, it can shape it and snowball it either in relatively healthy or relatively unhealthy ways. If yes. we have relatively insecure attachments, it's going to snowball in that direction. It will strengthen itself in that direction. If we have a secure attachment, it's going to strengthen itself in that direction. Um, and un unless, especially if we have insecure attachments, unless we have some kind of intersection with a relationship that can give us a different experience, a different set of things to sense. Yes. Which can change everything for us. Yeah. And of course, from the perspective of how we read, uh, you know, our, our, the notion of the gospel, Right, is this idea that like to encounter Jesus is to encounter a set of experience, a set of senses, if you will. We're sensing something like no other thing we've ever sensed. Yes. And that's why that can be so transformative as far as our attachments are concerned. It's why things like atonement is such a big theological idea. Atonement from the standpoint, not so much of paying for someone's sins, but this notion of the English origin of the word at one meant, right? God being one with us in our travail in order for that travail and suffering to be transformed in powerful ways. So mm -hmm. it's, it's helpful in a lot of different ways. Yes, yes. 
Well, I think too, something that I was thinking too about in looking at implicit memory and how mm. that impacts us and, and just thinking about, you know, my own history and my own views of God. And, you know, why don't you talk a little bit more about those patterns of attachment and implicit memories and that, that how our unconscious sometimes drives <laughs> how, how, like you were saying, how we experience things, how we view things, how we categorize things. Um, could you share a little bit right. about your thoughts with that? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll give a, I'll, I'll give a personal example okay. um, of this. You know, um, uh, I, I grew up as the fourth of four sons, but there were a lot of years between me and all my brothers. My brothers were 18, 16, and 11 when I was born. Okay. My parents were in their mid-40s when I was born in 1962, which is not a very common thing to have, you know, you know people wondering, like, about what my parents were doing, right? Was, <laughs> you know, they, they knew what they were doing, but, like, you know, you, you know what I mean. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, I was 38, and I was born at 65, and I kind of had an old mom compared to right. everybody else, yeah. so it's somewhat right. related. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so uh, I, I, I grew up in that environment now, and now as it's turned out, um, you know, uh, I have, uh, I mean, un unfortunately, I've, all three of my brothers have now passed from cancer. Oh, wow. And, and, and the most recent one happened, my, my oldest brother died in June, and, um, and, and this leaves me to be the only surviving member of my kind of family of origin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in working through a lot of that, one of the things that I've come to discover even now as a 56-year-old guy is uh, it, it's, it's funny how you, you're not even able to discover certain things in your family until um, everybody's gone. Mm. And one of the things that I've discovered has had to do with the nature of what it was like for me to grow up in my family in and around much older siblings whom I didn't really know all that well because they were so much older than me, but also in a family where my father was a guy who was deeply revered, very kind, but also very firm. And my temperament was one in which I worked pretty hard to make sure I didn't make him angry. Mm. And, I, you know, he, he was not an angry guy, but like given our combination of things, that's kind of how I operated. And I had a mom, again, a lovely person in many respects, but who had certain qualities of anxiety that meant I was going to work pretty hard to make sure I didn't make her anxious. Mm. Now, these aren't things that I was completely unaware of over the course of the last several decades of my life. Mm -hmm. But in the course of the passing of my last brother, there have been just a number of events in the course of having these conversations with surviving cousins and sisters-in-law and so forth that were saying things to me for the first time about what they witnessed about how my parents parented me when I was growing up, things that they'd never said to me before. Okay. And one of the things that has dawned on me is like, oh my gosh, I grew up in a family working really hard not to make my dad angry and not to make my mom anxious. And I practiced this really well. And I have been doing this with everybody. Mm. And, you know, like, 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 who knew that my psychiatric training began when I was like eight years old? Like, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't really know this, but, but this is what I began to do, right? Because you're working really hard to watch the landscape. Yes. 
so that everybody, well, I don't want anybody in the room to be mad and I don't want anybody in the room to be anxious. So you're watching diligently to make sure who is and who isn't and then working really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. This all becomes implicitly wired for me mm-hmm. without my even knowing that this is the case. Now, what's significant is part of, part of what's been so revealing and challenging and good has been like, I do this very thing with God. As much as I don't want to admit it, I really am worried, when is the next shoe going to drop? When am I either going to make him mad or I'm going to upset him in some way, shape, or form? Uh. So part of this discovery has been, has, has included a, a bit of a spiritual transformation for me, like beginning to really practice living into this notion of what we hear God saying to Jesus at his baptism. You're my son whom I love and whom well please. Like, so I wrote this where we do this exercise in Anatomy of the Soul. And it's an exercise that I'm deeply committed to. And I've watched it transform people's lives. And at the same time, now discovering that there are parts of my own heart's story that before June, I had not allowed that story to touch. Hmm. Not allowed God's voice of, you're my son whom I love and whom well please really to touch. Because you know, no matter how much you tell me, God, that like you're pleased with me, like I know better mm. because there is that part of my implicit neural bank that um, has a hard time believing that what I read in the scriptures is true. And so I've had friends, you know, circling around me to say, like, we want to put this to work. We need, we want this not just, just to be, you know, some kind of theological idea. We want this to be transformative for you as well. So uh, that's a long-winded example, though, of what I'm talking about. Like uh, these implicit tracks get revealed in the course of our lifetime. And then it takes practice for us to turn our attention to a different story. And by story, I don't just mean like an abstract thing, but like turn our attention to a different set of relational interchanges with real people in real time and space that enable our mind literally to be renewed, as St. Mm-hmm. Paul would write, mm-hmm. uh, even as our brains are being changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, saw that exercise of the book. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> um, yeah, I need to. Um, but it was also exciting to read about the impact that has had on some of your patients and, and yeah. what you shared about that. If, I guess if you were to say, you know, you, you said you came back and, you know, put some of these ideas to the test, so to speak, and saw differences with people. What do you, what would you say has been some of the biggest changes you've even seen with your patients? Just like, an, you know, overall, it seems that this has helped them to, what would you say? I would say um, a couple of things. Um, okay. One is, one example I give to folks uh, is that you know, if you go to see a physical therapist and you're, they're going to work on your shoulder, for instance, because you have an injury and you've had surgery and now you're going to work on your shoulder. Um, it's, and, and, and of course, they're going to give you exercises that they want you to do when you go home. And they want you to do them like, you know, 10 times, 20 times a day so that you can't really go to work because all you can do is physical therapy. And so... If, if as a physical therapist, they were to get out a, a model and show you exactly how 
the exercises you're doing are going to change and strengthen the muscle group that you're talking about mm-hmm. or the bone structure that you're talking about, patients are far more likely to go home and do them mm. when they have a working visualized understanding of the embodied changes that they're about to undertake because they've actually seen them in real time and space. Yes. One of the, so, so the first thing that I would say that has happened is that as we are able to describe for patients what's happening in their brains and the notion of how the mind is not just a thing that thinks, but it is a thing that feels and senses and images. Mm-hmm. And we give them real experiences that enable them to, for instance, uh, become aware that their attention is changing and shifting and that they have agency to change and shift their attention, that they become aware that their emotional states are largely mediated through the body, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that, we, that they have, a, diff- that they have a, di- a better understanding of what the right hemisphere does over and against what the left hemisphere does and so forth and so on how they learn to recognize that an interchange between them and another relationship is actually changing them physiologically, mm-hmm. for instance. Giving people these kinds of descriptive explanations for what is actually happening and how things are mechanically happening, as it were, helps them make sense of the work they're doing, and it makes it more likely for them to practice the things that we give them to practice. That's the first thing, if that makes sense. It gives them something to hang their hat on, that they can actually make sense of what they're sensing, even when they're sensing new things, even in in the consultation room as it's happening. Right. That's one thing. The second thing is this. We talk an awful lot about neuroplasticity in our office Mm -hmm. and how those neurons that fire together wire together Mm -hmm. and how the more we practice small things frequently Mm -hmm. rather than trying to practice large things infrequently Mm -hmm. leads to more permanence in the neuroplastic changes that we're actually desiring to make it actually then increases durability, right? So it enhances the likelihood of durability. It enhances the likelihood that people are, not only now do they understand what it is and, and are better able to make sense of the, you know, the different psychotherapy techniques that they're experiencing, right? Because interpersonal neurobiology is not a new psychotherapy technique. It is a way for understanding how the mind works. Mm-hmm. Consequently, you can talk about EMDR, you can talk about psychodynamic psychotherapy, you can talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, you can talk about neurofeedback, you can talk about any kind of intervention that you want to talk about mm-hmm. and describe it in terms of integration. Mm-hmm. As we give people explanations for what their mind is actually doing, no matter what that psychotherapy technique is, it helps them actually in the making sense of things and in the frequency of practicing things leads to greater, more permanent neuroplastic change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we let them know, like it's helpful information to know that it takes about a month for a, for a neuron to grow approximately one millimeter. Right. Mm-hmm. So look, you, you can't make the brain, move any faster than it can move. Now you can enhance it to some degree, but there are some limits. You just can't make, you know, you can't make permanent changes happen in in five minutes. Right. 
when people capture this information, when they actually learn that, oh my gosh, like it does actually take my brain a longer period of time to learn, it's helpful for them to know like this is going to take some time for me to implement this. This is not like, as it turns out, my brain does not live by McDonald's or Amazon's rules. It just doesn't do that, right? It lives by the rules that are more like gravity, that are more like the turn of the earth. Like it takes 24 hours for the earth to turn and you can't make that happen in like 10 hours. Yes. But we live in a world in which like we'd like to make that happen and we think we can in many respects. Wow. That's really profound what you're saying. Well, I think, you know, we've, we found this particular and, and this information, I think, to be helpful, again, because not unlike, I think, my experience when I had that encounter with Dan the very first time, you know, um, look, we don't like the notion that it takes a long time for things to change. Like, I don't like that necessarily. You know, just ask my wife, as long as it takes you to change. But intuitively, like, here's the thing. We get it, they're like, we know it does. Like it, it takes a long time and we get that. And when the science now says to us, you know, what, you're, what you intuit, what you really kind of have a hunch of, that even though you don't like it, it takes a long time, it's important to know that actually is the way the world works. And for us, I mean, I would say us, like for those of us who are people of faith, you know, one of the things that um, really strikes me is that I mean, there are plenty of things in my life that I wish I could correct more quickly. There are plenty of times and ways in which I wish God were working more quickly. And there is a sense in which, uh, however, I sense God and, and, and the lengthiness with which he's working is certainly consistent, first of all, with the age of the world. Secondly, consistent with this notion that God is not willing for there to be any stone left unturned in terms of what he wants to redeem. He's so serious about redemption mm -hmm. that he's going to take as long as it takes because it takes that kind of time to be as thorough as God wants to be in redeeming absolutely every square inch of neural patchwork that's going on in my mind. Mm. Now, I sometimes don't like this, but I would say, you know, that's the part of what it means to be loved that we, we often don't like. It's the part of what it means to be loved that our kids sometimes don't like when we are having, when we discipline them, when we say no to them about certain things, when they can't have everything that they want, when they want it, how they want it. And we are extending the amount of time that they're going to have to work at something. But I would go further and say, like, again, to our question about attachment, one of the things that a healthy attachment desperately requires is the opportunity for there to be enough of a stretching, enough of a rupture at times, right? Enough of us to have challenging things happen that require us to do the hard work that puts more weight on the bar of the relationship, as it were, in order for that to be, you know, you have to work that weight out in order for greater resilience become part of the fabric of secure attachment. And so in some respects, um, all this that we're talking about in terms of the challenges of how long it takes and the rough patches that it takes and so forth, only goes, I think, to create um, hard decks on which secure attachments can ultimately be formed.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is part one in a two-part series with Kurt Thompson, so be sure to subscribe and tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at chadoc.com. We hope you join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.